Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Dr. Taylor Sittler. Dr. Sittler is the head of research at Levels, a continuous glucose monitoring company, a physician and entrepreneur. His career has focused on personalizing medicine, starting companies in genetics and women's health, including co-founding Color Health, where he was the chief science officer. The topics we hit on for this episode, I try to go a bit of a different direction than I did with my episode with Kara Collier, since they both do revolve around glucose monitoring and glucose response in general. So some of the topics I hit on with Dr. Sittler today include glucose tracking and exercise performance, glucose response for different populations, resilience and glucose response, tracking glucose in healthy populations, does in-range glucose averages equate to healthy glucose response, are continuous glucose monitors ahead of other blood markers, and going overboard with CGM metrics. All right, so that'll be kind of the topics that I touch on as well as a few other things with Dr. Sittler. Uh, if you want to access the Dr. Sittler episode ad-free audio, you can do that now on the show Patreon page for $1 per month subscription. If you want early release and ad-free, there are a couple episodes up there as well that are at the $3 per month donation level. And those include Vinny Crispino and Stuart Chutter. Vinny Crispino had a life-changing experience breaking his back nearly 10 years ago. He has fought his way back to the point where he is now training for a 50 miler. I've been doing some consultations with Vinny the last few weeks, and it has been really fun to see him make strides in his running performance with some of the stuff that we've been working on. Uh, Stuart Chutter is also an ultra athlete, endurance athlete, I should say, because he does all sorts of things between marathons, ultra marathons, obstacle course racing, everything like that. He's also a farmer up in Canada and uh, has led a regenerative agricultural movement on his farm. So we talked specifically about some of the stuff that uh, he wanted to share after listening to a few of my previous episodes with regenerative agriculture, as well as just his setup on the farm. Uh, and he's got an outdoor strength uh, setup with like squat racks and things like that. He's also got uh, or did a project where he trained for a marathon and raced eating nothing but food from his farm. So I talked to him a bit about that as well. Stuart was fun interesting. And I think he is uh, uh, someone who uh, is definitely putting his actions where his beliefs are around a lot of different areas in life. So it was fun to talk with him. Currently scheduling Dr. Spencer and Carl Nadolsky, who are both who are obesity doctors and endocrinologists, uh, respectively. And one of the topics we'll hit on there is CGM practical usage and things to be mindful of. So I'm going to be looking for those guys to push back a little bit on some of the positives, because I know with a lot of this new technology, sometimes it's like, these are great. These tools are awesome. It opens up a bunch of doors. What do we need to be mindful of to make sure that those tools aren't necessarily abused or used incorrectly? Um, also scheduling Boyd Myers, who's an Air Force vet, former bodybuilder. He gained a bunch of weight and then lost it through triathlon. And he is now participating in the Gold Star Initiative, which gives veterans the chance to team up and honor Gold Star families by carrying an American flag during the run portion of select Ironman and Ironman 70.3 events. 
So I'm going to hear about Boyd, Boyd's story and what he's doing to help those Gold Star families. And also currently scheduled Jennifer Lankenu, who has a ton of things I want to chat about, including this urban hiking stuff that she does, which can include 30 plus mile, very fast hikes through cities like Seattle. Um, also, really interesting thing about Jennifer is she's had some big health turnarounds. A lot of times when it comes to nutrition, we think of things like very simplified in terms of macronutrient ratios, uh, energy intake, energy output, but certain foods and certain ways of eating can also be ways to help other things. So one thing that makes Jennifer unique is she is now been seizure free for nearly six years, down 160 pounds and has combated her epilepsy through nutrition. So I want to hear about her lifestyle and kind of what she does to kind of manage all that stuff. Uh, if you want to support the podcast monetarily, but don't want to join Patreon, you can make single donations at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. That is also where you can link to and sign up for the show's Patreon page. If you do want to go that route, another way you can support the show non-monetarily that goes a very long way is just simply liking, sharing, subscribing and writing reviews on the podcasts that you enjoy so that I can help grow the audience for it. Also, if you are looking for a little bit of help in your training, I do offer both one-on-one coaching as well as ready-made plans that include things like 5k all the way up to hundred mile at three different levels. I also have base building. If you're just looking to get back into running or into running for the first time and you want to lay a strong foundation and for those strength athletes out there who want to do some dabbling in endurance sport as a one-off or just to get curious or to simply supplement your strength without losing your gains, I also have a endurance program for strength athletes over there. You can also sign up for things like consultations and email collaboration. Those details can all be found at ZachBetter.com. Finally, last way that you can support the show is if one of the show sponsors happens to have a product that you think would be useful for your lifestyle support or supporting the show by clicking through the links and using the discount codes provided will let them know that you came to them through the human performance outliers podcast this episode's sponsors and all of the sponsors for this episode or for this podcast can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash hpo sponsors this episode sponsors are lmnt electrolytes and athletic greens flagship product ag1 Athletic Greens flagship product AG1 is a supplement that contains 75 high quality vitamin, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I like to take one scoop of AG1 first thing in the morning. Usually I'll mix it with about eight ounces of cold water and have that right before my first cup of coffee. I like to take it on an empty stomach because per Athletic Greens, that's the best way to absorb all of those 75 high quality vitamins and minerals the best. So usually I'm heading out for a run after I've been awake for about an hour or so in the morning and I like to have an empty stomach anyway. So that fits nicely there along with my cup of coffee first things first. AG1 is lifestyle friendly and fits into a keto, paleo, low carb, dairy free or gluten free and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their product based on the latest science and third party testing. On top of that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I love these travel packs because they're these little green square packages that lay flat and I can just stuff a few of them in my suitcase. And if I'm out of town for a few days, I know I got that first thing in the morning, 75 high quality vitamin minerals sitting there waiting for me. So if you want to check that out, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You can find links to that in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, going to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos are the citrus flavor and the newly restocked watermelon flavor for my long runs and post-run rehydration as well as their chocolate flavor, which I love to add in my morning coffee with a little bit of creamer. It tastes great, and it's a fun way to start the day for me. If you are hesitant or would like to try out Element first, before you purchase, they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the HPO URL. If you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Dr. Sittler, thank you for taking some time out of your day and coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's been interesting. I, I I started getting interested in continuous glucose monitors and just this idea of kind of 24-7 feedback loops with that type of a measurement. Uh, a few years ago, actually, I had a, a guest on, um, Dr. Bubbs, and he had wrote a book, Peak, which you might be familiar of. And there was a, a study that they referenced in that book when they got to the uh, the kind of performance optimization stuff with endurance athletes where they did like a hundred kilometer race. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as they start talking about ultra marathoners, I'm just like, my, my brain kind of peaks up a little bit. It's like, Oh, okay, cool. This is some possible research within the sport I do, which typically has had quite a, quite sparse research relative to other sports. Uh, but they looked at, uh, like an elite hundred K athlete versus someone who was just like, kind of more middle of the pack or what they'd maybe call like a weekend warrior in the running world. Uh, and just like their fueling strategies and their glucose response to it. And I think they were, they kind of walked away from that particular study, kind of surprised at the differences they saw where it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was necessarily like a situation where you could have a one size fits all like carbohydrate muscle glycogen defense strategy for everyone across the board, regardless of whether they were in the front of the race or the back of the race or somewhere in between. And, and then I'm sure even amongst the same population, you're going to, you're going to get some variance as well. And that got me kind of interested in it at a, like, at a much higher level than what I would have been previously. So it'll be kind of fun to chat about kind of what you've seen both inside, uh, 
the world of continuous glucose monitoring and kind of how that's evolved over the last few years and the data you've collected over the course of all of it. Yeah, for sure. There's, um, you know, I, to, to be honest, I'm, I'm not a, um, a performance guru. So there's some of this that, that may be outside of my expertise, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm really interested in this, in basically the correlations that we're seeing between how your body responds to food, how it responds to stressors and challenges, uh, you know, a hundred, an ultra marathon being a, a, an extreme example of one of those challenges, mm-hmm. um, and how those dynamics change over time and what that can tell you about your health. I think one thing I'm really interested in with continuous glucose monitoring is outside of my own interests is just the amount of data you can collect that is, it just has to be unique when you have this sort of monitoring system in place can, I would imagine, get us closer to being able to look at different populations in a unique light versus trying to fit everyone into this like kind of neat range that we think is, or as far as we know, is kind of like this target range, which I suspect, and maybe I'm wrong and you, maybe you can fill me in on this. What we'll end up seeing is certain lifestyles may be indicative of different types of glucose ranges as, as optimal or as what we would expect from the the physiological response due to that lifestyle. Now, whether that lifestyle is healthy or not is the next question, I suppose. But uh, in terms of measuring glucose and where those ranges fall and what we can maybe expect from things like peaks and dips. Is there from the data that you guys have collected at levels, any indication that that would be something that would be an interesting frontier to kind of go after as we get more data or. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think the overarching point and you kind of referenced it. um, I'd love to actually come back to what you were talking about for endurance athletes at some point and we can get into that, but the, um, uh, you know, I think the overarching point is that there's, there's a lot of personal variation, um, both in terms of the exact, you know, the types of spikes that you get, the height, the changes in your glucose, uh, as well as the, um, you know, the, the duration of those spikes and, um, you know, what kinds of foods you respond to, what kinds of exercise you respond to. Uh, you mentioned that there wasn't a single strategy that would work for everyone based on the continuous glucose monitoring work that was done. And I think that's probably true because, you know, we're, we're so diverse, like we, you know, there's a a ton of variation in human genetics, right? Um, we're, uh, over one of the stats I like to quote is over 50% of, um, of variation, uh, occurs at less than 1% frequency, which means that there's a, a ton of difference in terms of how your individual enzymes work and how things are coordinated in your body. Um, and so I think, uh, there's, there's no one strategy that works for everybody. Um, but what we're finding is that there are some general guidelines. I think we're seeing that roughly, you know, trying to keep your glucose between 70 and 110 seems to be a pretty good idea. Um, minimizing the number of spikes that you have uh, over that amount seems to be a pretty good idea. Um, the strategies that you have to employ to do that kind of thing can vary from person to person. And certainly one of the things that we see a lot in our members is that they learn a lot about how their bodies respond to food uh, when they start the program. And it can be pretty surprising. Things that you think that you wouldn't respond to, you might respond pretty strongly to um, and vice versa. 
And then there are things like, you know, even the order in which you eat things can make a big difference in terms of your glucose. So there's there's a ton of ways to generate the, the variation that we see. And there are also a bunch of strategies that you can use to try and improve your glucose and your general metabolic health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the difference from one person to the next based on certain foods is an interesting one to me because it's like intuitively you want to think like if if I eat a piece of fruit and get this response, most people should. Or if I eat you know a candy bar and or cookie or whatever it happens to be, and the 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 interesting thing that I find is where I think the application here is going to be important outside of say like, you know, someone with like diabetes, obviously this is a game changer for them. Of course. Uh, now you enter like the, you know, one interesting question I got was like, okay, well, this is cool, but what, what, where's the actionable items within it for someone who has a reasonable A1C score where we kind of mm-hmm. have a look at this person over the course of whatever it happens to be 30, 60 days is in range on average. Therefore, we're assuming they're doing some things right, if that's the case. And then at that point, maybe it's kind of a thing where like, avoid paralysis by analysis and just go about your life the way it was, because there's no reason for concern. And my first thought with that is like, well, they're probably in a better place by going that route than say someone who is pre-diabetic or already diabetic. Mm -hmm. But what if that person has a nice clean average and that nice clean average is because they're getting aggressive spikes followed by aggressive dips, which would put you in a bit of a roller coaster ride, I would imagine, from just like a way you would go about your day-to-day life. So I'm curious about that. Like, is there like I'm I'm really curious about the applications within just like someone who is looks on paper otherwise healthy with our previous analytical tools for this sort of stuff. And mm. some of the stuff that you're maybe seeing within the patterns of people who fall within the range on uh, like a 30 day average that can still have some good, uh, dietary manipulations that would maybe make their lifestyle a little more, a a little better, even though on paper it already looks good. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first, the first thing I'll say is that like, there are, you know, A1C actually takes a little while to go up. So you can, you can have folks that are pre-diabetic, um, whose A1C is actually pretty normal and glucose monitoring is a great way to figure that out. So, um, that's, I, you know, I think there's already some value in just looking at your patterns. Um, what's, what's really helpful I find is correlating those patterns with what's happening in your life. So you, the example that you brought up was, let's say you're getting really high spikes followed by dips. Often what that means is you're having a post-meal crash. That means following a meal, your glucose is dropping low. Usually you can feel that to some extent. You may feel a little bit slow. You may feel tired. And being able to see how your glucose correlates with how you feel uh, actually makes a huge impact. That's what we call interoception. And, and I think that's where glucose can actually help out a bunch is you know, when you start to feel a certain way, trying to figure out why um, or even help you figure out what it is that you're feeling. Um, some people, when their glucose goes high, get uh, this sort of slight tingly feeling, for instance. Um, so being able to really use the glucose to help you understand how you're feeling can make a big difference. And particularly for folks who are having postprandial crashes or, or post-meal crashes, um, just you know trying to level that out. And there are a couple of strategies that you can use to not have post-meal crashes um, can make a big difference for them, right? They may, they may not feel tired after lunch anymore. They may not need to go take a nap, 
right? So there, are, I think there are a lot of ways that you can use continuous glucose monitoring to uh, improve your metabolic health and your daily life outside of worrying about getting uh, type two diabetes. Um, another example that we're starting to see there, there's a, a little bit, I mean, I, I think it's, it's the, the literature is still mixed on this. And I, I mean, I think it's, it's because it's complicated, but um, people talk a lot about zone two training, you know, um, and sort of low intensity training um, <clears throat> correlated with fat burning. And this idea that if you can um, enable your body to, to do aerobic metabolism under a fat burning state, um, you can actually uh, increase your, your power output and you can increase your, um, you know, the, the, basically your ability to exercise, um, particularly for endurance sports. And you can, we're, we're starting to see that you can use glucose monitoring to help you figure out when you're in that zone too. I think the, you know, the heart rate, which is traditionally what they use to figure that out is, is kind of a poor proxy for it because what you're actually trying to do is figure out how much fat you're burning. And since there are two main fuels, glucose and fat, um, by monitoring how much glucose you're burning, you can make a, an inference about how much fat you're burning. Now there's, you know, there, I, I don't want to say that we've got this nailed yet because this is still very much hypothesis driven research, but I, I think you're starting to see a lot of athletes use their glucose trace to help them improve their workouts, either for zone two training or to figure out once they've, you know, once, if you start to see a rise in your glucose, if you start to see a peak, you may be experiencing um, muscle fatigue and you may need to supplement with some additional glucose that can then help you further down the line. I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on this. I'm, I'm imagining you've read a lot about that and, you know, you talked a bit about peak. So yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's a, it's a fun topic. And when you get into like ultra marathon and even to a degree, some of the more Olympic distances like marathoning and things like that, there's this component of, uh, you know, pretty much everybody to some capacity is going to be fueling during the event. It's like defending, you get to a certain point and defending your muscle glycogen stores, that small right. fuel tank is something that just is going to improve your performance. And it, it really is, it doesn't even, it doesn't even matter what your diet is to a large degree, because like, it does, but it doesn't, the question of to fuel or not to fuel isn't necessarily dietary related. As far as I can tell, it's more a question of how much fueling do you need? So mm -hmm. like knowing your ratio of carbs to fat that you are metabolizing at various intensities is a really, really good step in the right direction for most of these endurance athletes, because with that information, they can start piecing together a plan as to like, how many grams of carbohydrate per hour do I need to defend muscle glycogen over the duration of this event? And traditionally, like the way you would do that is you'd go and get like a metabolic cart test done and you could kind of find out what intensities are going to be, what percentage of carbs to fats. And then you could take that number and carry it into the racer, the, the event itself. Problem with that is that's a moving target. So like mm -hmm. as your training improves and your fitness improves, independent of diet, your fat oxidation rates are likely going to improve to some degree. Uh, then you add any sort of dietary manipulation or change. Now that's going to alter it again. So like most people are going to have, it's a pretty high bar for most people to even get into a lab and have that test done in the first place. And then the people who do, it's like, are you going to consistently do it enough to make sure that any changes are accounted for? So I would see it sort of in the same category as like, you know, going in a couple times a year, 
getting your blood panel done, seeing your A1C, seeing like where your fasting blood glucose level, blood glucose level is at, you kind of get that snapshot at one point in time. Now, how much more information or how much more precise can we be if we have live feedback, like up to the event itself where, uh, or in the event itself, in this case, where, like you said, like if you yeah. take a scan and realize, well, my blood glucose is blood glucose is at this level for me, that's an indication that it's time to take in, like say 20 grams of glucose or something like that, or mine is at this level. This is a good indication that I have, uh, I should stay away from fueling for a while and maybe just focus on hydration and electrolytes or something like that. So I think there's some great application here for that sort of thing. And obviously the more precise and the more exact and the more data we collect in order to properly be able to take that data and use it as like an indication to do one thing or the other, the closer you get mm -hmm. to making it a usable tool for that sort of stuff. And some of that might just be playing around with it in training too, and kind of recognizing at the individual level, what certain signs mean. Uh, I know one of the more interesting things I was learning when I was wearing it is I would do, I, I was wearing a, I was wearing a, I had it for two weeks during like this big high volume buildup. I was training for a 24 hour race. So I was like, mm -hmm. I was putting in some like really some of the bigger volume blocks I've ever put in actually. And, uh, it was a two a day training system. So like I'd go off this afternoon run and mm -hmm. like a few times a week when I would do that, I would notice like at a certain point during that run, my, my blood glucose would actually dip low, like below, below the range that, that it should, according to the chart anyhow. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, if I would see that during a race itself, um, depending on the intensity of the race, that could be an indication like, okay, this is the, this is like the sweet spot to maybe hit some glucose. Cause I'm, I'm at a point where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm low. I it should enter more. Is that sort of the, the, the correct path of that? Or am I thinking about that more backwards? No, no, I, th I think that's, that's right. Well, it, it, so it's a little bit nuanced in the sense that, um, <clears throat> when you're, when your glucose, when your blood glucose goes low, it doesn't necessarily indicate that your, um, your glycogen stores are gone in your muscles. Um, it may be an indication that you're doing more fat burning. Mm. So, uh, it's, it's a mixed, I think it, th there's a mixed thing there. Typically, I think what, um, when, when people start to get fatigued in endurance sports, um, your glucose will actually paradoxically rise before it falls, assuming that you have reasonable liver glycogen storages, right? Mm -hmm. Assuming that you did carbo loading and stuff like that before the race. And that rise in glucose is, is telling you that your liver is trying to produce more glucose to, to fuel your muscle cells. Um, and then what can typically happen is once you get extreme fatigue, then you see a, a precipitous drop or a, you know, a, a change in that glucose level pretty quickly. Um, and that you, you really want to avoid that, right? You want to get that, um, the glucose back up before that happens so that, um, your muscles have a continuous fuel source. Um, there are a few things to think about in that context though. If you're bonking or if you're, you know, you're, you're dropping, that may be an indication that you're, you know, you're, um, pushing too hard. You may want to change your pace if you can. Right. Um, the other thing to think about is if you, so a lot of people have this, um, this is where the zone two training comes in. A lot of people will have a response where under a light load of exercise, um, your glucose will initially rise a bit and then it will fall and it will stay at like a 70 or an 80 level. And I think that's an indication, um, particularly if you're exercising in a fasted state, 
that your body is conserving that glucose, your liver is conserving the glucose, and you're actually increasing the ratio of fat that you're burning. And that's actually a really good sign. So I, it, there's not always a, if your glucose drops, you should eat more kind of signal. It's, it's understanding the patterns and what's important for you. Because I would think if you're like, let's say you're, you're undergoing a, you know, a hundred mile race, um, you actually kind of want your glucose to go up and then drop into a, a reasonable state so that you're burning more fat, right? That means that your body's being more efficient and you're going to take less glucose in over the next 24 hours in order to finish the race. So that's actually a really good sign. Um, however, if you're, you know, if your your glucose previously was high and it's starting to dip, you definitely want to start taking in uh, some, some glucose and, you know, to power bar, whatever, you know, drink some, however you need to, in order to fuel yourself. So there's, there's a little bit of nuance here in terms of, you know, what patterns you're seeing over what period of time. And I think that's where it starts to get really interesting for people. And, you know, I'll, I'll just, um, give you a little more context here. I'm not, I did triathlons for a little while, but I'm not an endurance athlete by any stretch. And, um, you know, while I've talked to a few of them, I'm also not an expert in that. We we do have a couple of advisors at the company that are uh, more expert at this sort of thing. But um, these are more, I think, you know, my observations here are more from watching others do this um, and, and some, you know, some basic uh, experimentation on my own rather than like a true understanding of like, you have to do this in order to sure. achieve it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing, like mean, what you said makes sense to me because like I trend lower carbohydrate. And when I was doing that particular training block, it was a lot of low intensity stuff that would have been like those runs where I dipped that low would have actually been like zone one. Like I probably wasn't even getting into zone two at that point. So like mm -hmm. it would stand to reason giving my dietary patterns, the relatively low intensity of that workout, the, you know, the years of improving fat oxidation rates through diet and training, like that my body would likely gravitate to like about as close to hundred percent fat metabolism as I'm going to get during that level of intensity, that time of day too. Um, you know, I wouldn't like when I was doing those runs that would have been like in the back end of a two a day where I had done a healthier portion of my training earlier that day and likely put myself in a position where I was probably burning quite high levels of fat just due to the amount of energy being burnt at low intensity. I'm just assuming that my body is going to prioritize fat metabolism metabolism at that point and possibly carry on enough since I wasn't like replacing a meaningful amount of my fuel with carbohydrate after that, that that would maybe drive that scenario to be like lower than what you'd maybe even expect. But I didn't feel like I was dizzy or going to pass out or anything like that, which was a good indication mm -hmm. that things were happening metabolically. That was kind of keeping me in a good state. Uh, it got me to think a little bit about just some of the, I believe it was a Dr. Finney study where he was looking at individuals on a ketogenic diet. And, mm -hmm. uh, at a certain point he had some folks that were just like, like the so deep into ketosis where their blood glucose was dropping down to points where like in a traditional setting, that person wouldn't have even been conscious at the levels they were at. And I, wow. I wasn't nearly that low, but, <laughs> but you know, you're trending that way, I guess is maybe the way to look at it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, it can trend toward hypoglycemia. Uh, and we, we have seen with a few athletes that, um, it gets down there. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
I haven't, I haven't seen anything in that range, like in the forties or the thirties or anything like that. We haven't seen anything like that or I haven't. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I think the idea is still there. Right. Uh, and if you're, um, if your liver is making ketones, right, then you can actually, uh, your muscles can often burn those ketones just as well. So then it's, then, you know, the, the muscle is doing fatty acid oxidation. It's getting some additional, uh, bump from ketones that are being provided by the liver. And there's very little, uh, there's very little, um, energy being provided by glucose under those situations. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the other thing to piggyback on that too, that sort of kind of, I think feed, feeds into your theory a little bit was when I would do moderate intensity workouts, uh, what I would see on the monitor would be different in the sense where I would see by the end of that, especially if I was like speeding up a little bit at the end, which isn't too uncommon. I'm depending on the way I structure the workout, there'll be times where I just feel good. And then by the end, you know, I'll just push a little harder the last couple of miles. Cause I know I'm close. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to push a little bit harder intensity at the end of that type of a workout, it's better placed at the end versus in the beginning. And when I would look at that data afterwards, I would see that kind of gradual creep up in blood glucose. And the interesting thing about that was like these, those runs were done like, you know, on a fasted state, no fueling during it. So it wasn't like I was getting that gradual rise from introducing an exogenous glucose source. That was my body mobilizing, uh, mobilizing glucose, you know, from the liver and muscle and things like that. And, and letting that kind of get up, I guess, uh, due to the, the relative demand for it. And like you mentioned before, since it was the end of the run too, I was probably, I mean, my understanding is that with, when it comes to muscle glycogen, like you're probably not going to be dipping much below like 40% before your body starts to sort of fight back a little bit and increase your perceived effort at that intensity. So it's like, but perhaps I was like kind of getting towards those numbers where if I would carry on that run much further, I'd start kind of noticing the effort increase at that same pace if I didn't replace some of that glucose that I was going to. And perhaps that rise was the indication that I was kind of trending towards that point. Interesting. Yeah, no, I I mean, these are, these are the sorts of observations that we're collecting right now to try and understand this all better. Um, The, do you, have you actually used CGM for like dosing yourself for, with, you know, glucose and, and things during a run? I haven't used it as like a guide for that. I basically just used it as a sense to kind of look at trends as to like what it does in the context of certain workouts. The next step would be kind of like what you were saying, like, what does that information mean? And how do I actually apply like a fueling strategy to better maybe either execute workouts or how, what, what does this indicate in terms of what I should be doing on race day from a fueling strategy? If I see these sort of things happening in competition versus in training where I can afford more mistakes is maybe the way to look at it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I'm actually going to throw one on again soon. I'm getting, I'm at a point my, I was, I'm coming off an off season and I just put in like a few weeks of pretty solid training, but right now I have a much more periodized schedule where I'm doing like, you know, everything from easy recovery runs to short intervals to like longer intervals. And I'm, I'm basically covering the intensity spectrum a lot more holistically than I would have been when I wore it during that last one. So I, I will be kind of curious to see, like, I, I guess maybe I'll get better more data to maybe look at and confirm some of those trends I saw the first time around and whether they were something that's going to happen every time for me, or if it's something that was just like an anomaly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think some, some of the things we've been looking out for are, you know, what, under what conditions do you see that drop? 
right? And and then that stabilization at a, at a lower rate, like under what conditions are you seeing that essentially increase in fatty acid oxidation? Um, and then the other thing that, that's been interesting is under what conditions do you see your glucose rise without you taking in any, uh, any food or drink? Um, and I think what, well, what we see from people's everyday workouts is when they start to do something that's strenuous, it goes up pretty quickly, right? Um, and so I guess the theory here is that as your, your muscles are moving toward um, sort of, or moving past peak performance and you're having to recruit more and more um, effort in order to achieve the same um, pace or whatever it is that you're going to see that glucose rise. So it'd be interesting to see like when you increase the intensity of your exercise, can you go from like a low state to you like to a, a higher glucose state uh, with that? And then if you, um, and then, you know, it, it may also be interesting to look at, at what point does your, at what point does it start to drop, right? Like if you, if you increase it to the point that let's say your, your glucose rises to, I mean, for me, when I'm doing intense exercise, it goes up to 170 or up to 200 sometimes, um, you know, at what point that starts to fall and whether that fall correlates with increased, um, essentially, uh, muscle like robustness, right? Mm -hmm. it, whether it's, whether essentially as you improve your fitness, at a particular pace, um, whether it takes longer for that glucose to drop off. So that's mm -hmm. something to think about as well. Like, yeah. let's say you do an all out pace for two miles, right? What is that? What does that look like? And then does that change over time? Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are LMNT electrolytes. You can get a free eight pack sample pack right now by heading over to their website and Athletic Greens and their flagship product, AG1. With a pur purchase, you will get a free travel pack of AG1 as well as a year supply of vitamin D3. Links are in the show notes as well as zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point because like, I wonder if there would be some sort of, some sort of comparative or like an, an extra data point you could include on top of things like heart rate and pace or intensity and pace, which are typically the metrics I use to gauge improvement, where it's like, once I start to start getting some data points on where my heart rate is at, at certain intensities, uh, or where my heart rate is at. And then also like in the context of what intensity that should be, uh, which just basically comes down to getting accurate heart rate measures for the individual. But at that point, then it's just like, we want to see that pace drop at that same intensity. So like on week one, if 170 beats per minute produces X minute per mile pace in two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, I want to see like improvements, uh, like a, a trend, a trend line showing that we're getting faster at that same intensity to, to see that the, the training and recovery matches is, is heading in the right direction. So like you could probably have some similarities there with just your improvement from a glucose tolerance standpoint or a, a glucose usage standpoint or lack thereof if it's low intensity, I guess, in terms of whether you're making improvements there or not in terms of your fat oxidation rates, which would just be like the fueling side of the equation versus the actual pacing side of the equation when it comes to workout and race performance. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, I, I think the the caveat here, of course, is that there's, there are probably some other factors that mm -hmm. complicate the glucose trace. But yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting tool to start using for workouts mm -hmm. um, and, and, and looking at your performance.
The interesting thing is, is I had uh, Dr. Dominic Diagostino on the show a while back while I was doing that. And I explained to him that same scenario that I just told you where I had that lower drop, like in those afternoon workouts. And we talked a bit or hypothesized a bit about exactly what you meant. She's like, I wonder what would happen if I would like, when I would get that, like that dip and mine weren't like crazy. I think it was like maybe in the high fifties, mid high fifties or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So lower than I would typically see, but like, not like like off the charts low right. where like no one's seen it before type of thing. Um, and we were just hypothesizing, like if I just start doing like strides, like even just like short, like 30 to 60 second, like, like accelerations and do like four to six of them. If I would see that kind of that mobilization of glucose start to kind of ratchet up as I change the intensity. And and I didn't, I didn't get around to, to testing that in the field, but that might be something that I watch for this, this next time around. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's really the guy that, that knows most about this. So I'm glad you got a chance to talk with him about it. I was, it was funny. Cause when I had him on and I was, we were just going back and forth about that, what, what he knew and comparing to what I saw. And like, every time I would say something that would be like a little bit, maybe different or interesting him, he would just like, look, start writing something down. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's taking he's taking notes about like what, what what is the what are the anecdotes that are kind of happening in the field here for some of these people versus what I've seen so far and but yeah it'll be interesting to see what what he and others come up with when it comes to this sort of technology and and its usage across the board and, and in some cases sports I think will be be an interesting one as well and and you know I've seen other athletes at the more Olympic distance stuff wearing them it's like it's kind of that uh, thing where it's like you know they have them on their triceps so like mm-hmm. you have a runner out there with a singlet on or whatever they happen to be wearing you can kind of tell if they're wearing one or not so you do see right. that happening a little bit more often no that's interesting that's that's fun yeah I I didn't uh it's been a while since I mean I I did tries about I think 10 years ago or something like that 15. So it's, it's been a while since I've been out on the circuit, but, um, it'd be, that's, that's an interesting trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you wanted to chat a bit about, uh, was it resiliency? Resilience. Yeah. Well, so I, I think, you know, if we take this out of the context of performance athletics, although actually, you know, maybe, maybe we can just start from here. Um, we can sort of work our way back into what levels is about because levels is really, I think, about building something for the more for the general population to help folks understand how food impacts their health and then beyond. But if if you think about what we were just talking about, about, you know, the glucose monitoring and in the same way that you expect for a particular pace, your heart rate to go down over weeks, we expect that your glucose trace will change because your body's becoming more and more optimized. That's actually the concept of resilience. It's this idea that when you look at the the trace, how your body prepares for and recovers from a particular activity has a a lot to do with how healthy you are. Um, And and it can also extend to performance. So um, the, the, the idea of resilience has actually been used in clinical practice for a long time. Things like um, for actually diagnosing diabetes, an oral glucose tolerance test is a type of resilience measurement. You give someone a big slug of glucose, and then you see how long it takes their body to metabolize it and bring the, the glucose level back down. Um, things like a cardiac stress test are the same idea where you stress the heart and then you see the impact. Um, and so Resilience really, uh, particularly in the context that we're talking about, um, helps us essentially take a glucose trace or take continuous monitoring data 
and use it to try to improve somebody's health. Um, and and I think you know when we when we think about it, the the way we have traditionally thought about health is an absence of disease, right? There's you you when you go to the doctor, they look at um, do you have diabetes? Do you have cardiovascular disease? Do you have cancer? Boom, boom, boom. And really, I think the way we should start thinking about it is looking toward health rather than away from disease. So you don't need to wait until you're sick to start trying to improve your health. And that's really through this. Um, it's by thinking about your metabolic health first, and then by thinking about resilience in there. And you as an athlete think about this, I think intuitively, because you're constantly looking at your numbers and how they improve with different types of training, which is effectively the, the two parts to resilience are a stressor, which is the training, and then an adaptation, which is basically how your body responds to that. And mm -hmm. um, so resilience is, is really about looking at metabolic health in that context. And in addition to training, we can do things like, you know, how does your body respond to a, 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 a carton of French fries? Or how does it respond to a Coke? Or how does it respond to um, sleep or lack thereof, right? How, how well did your last workout go? Um, when you were, uh, you know, when your, uh, your boss was yelling at you, how did you respond to that, right? Because often people will get um, glucose spikes when they're stressed and you can, you can see how those things change over time. So I think there's a lot that we can take from these traces. Glucose, I think, is the first um, feedback metric that we'll get. It's the first thing that we're measuring in relation to metabolic health, but there's more to come. And so this concept of resilience is really not just looking at, you know, is your A1C good enough? Am I spiking? You know, is my spike tall or not tall? How many spikes do I have over the day? It's looking at how those change over time. And that can tell you a lot about your health. For example, um, folks who tend to have type 2 diabetes have taller spikes that last for a longer period of time. They may last three or four hours after a meal. Um, that's actually one of the things that we use to diagnose diabetes is how long does that spike last? Um, whereas somebody who has you know, better or lower insulin resistance and is more um, really adaptable and resilient will have a, a smaller spike that recovers more quickly and typically is biphasic. So there's an initial rise and then there's a, um, a secondary rise and a drop. Right, so the the shape of that spike matters as much as whether or not you have a spike, and and I think that's where moving to this next level of looking at the data that we're collecting will have a big impact on how much we can tell about people's health and how much we can help them improve it. Interesting. So it sounds like kind of what you're saying is almost regardless of the peak of the spike, you want it to come down at a fairly similar like trajectory or angle, I guess, as the rise versus like a plateauing and a gradual descent, which you're going to see more typically in like a type two diabetic. Um, and, but then shorter spikes are going to generally be better than taller ones, even independent of that. Yeah. I mean, I think of it as, um, we, we don't, you know, we're still, I, I think with glucose in particular, we're learning a lot at levels. We just started this very large research study where we're trying to look at and establish what those 
um, shapes look like across the general population. So far, really, most of the work has been done in type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and there's been very little done in the general population. The things that, so, so we're still at the very beginning of this, but these are the early things that we're starting to see, is that there are differences both in terms of height, duration, um, and then the, the, in general, the variability. Uh, of glucose in folks who are healthy versus those that are maybe more insulin resistant or more trending toward diabetes. Um, it's a similar trend actually to what you see with heart rate variability. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with that, like higher heart rate variability is associated with better fitness, better athletic performance, and it just means your heart's more adaptable, right? Um, in the same way that you can think about glucose variability uh, in response to food, stress, sleep, et cetera, um, influences your how you're responding to something and how well you're recovering. Um, it lets you know how, how quickly can I expect to recover from an all-nighter or um, how quickly, like, you know, if I, if I go for a five-mile run, what's that going to look like for me? And um, so, so that's, the, that's the idea behind resilience. It's still at an early stage, but that's, that's really where we're headed. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I think one of the things I learned or I guess I was probably aware of this to some degree. I just didn't have that actual like interpersonal data point to see it for myself in myself was the sleep side of the equation. And mm. um, I'm fortunate that I don't find myself in too many situations where I'm like only sleeping three hours a night um, other than maybe like on the back end of a hundred mile race or something like that. But uh, this particular situation was just kind of unique. I'd had a friend who was, uh, who was in town and, and I hadn't seen him in a while. So I ended up uh, driving up to uh, uh, Sedona where I was living. I was living in Phoenix at the time to, to visit him and ended up staying there and slept like three hours that night, drove back down. And that's that day I was eating pretty consistent to what I would normally eat with a totally different glucose profile. It was uh, like I had much higher spikes, the spikes that did happen. They hung up there a fair bit longer. Uh, and it was just like a really interesting look into kind of what was happening behind or like, I guess, inside in a scenario like that, where you disrupt an element of your life that is, you know, an important component, which is that rest and recovery side of things that you're going to get at night, which made me just like think about, you know, people who are chronically running on low levels of sleep, how much of a difference that's going to make in their, their patterns from just health markers across the board. Because when you think about it, like blood glucose is, it seems to be that this element of tech is accelerating a bit faster than say the rest of the blood panel testing you're going to get. Like we don't really have other things that are going to give us that sort of 24 seven feedback. And, you know, just seeing what it does to that makes you wonder, well, what else is going on in there? That's suboptimal because of this one choice I made that was, you know, not in my best interest from a performance standpoint anyway. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think we're, we're starting to learn a lot. Um, you know, there are already some studies showing a correlation between insulin resistance and sleep. Um, so I'm, I'm actually not super surprised you saw that. I see that too, by the way. Um, when, I don't, when I don't get enough sleep, my spikes are higher um, and, and they can last for longer. So it's, um, it is really interesting to see how your resilience changes day to day, right, um, based on the choices that you make. And that's where I think, you know, right now Levels is really focused on trying to um, help people imp improve the food choices they make and see how food impacts their health. Uh, I think over time, there's a lot of opportunity to help with things like sleep, stress, um, you know, basically any kind of a health habit, um, mm -hmm. including performance and, and exercise. 
Yeah, you get those people who are going to try to do their best or will do their best and consistently do their best, but are a little bit kind of out of sight, out of mind, where like something like a continuous glucose monitor puts it in sight and in mind. So then I think the you think twice before making a negative decision where like if you don't necessarily see an upfront detriment to that, which is usually the case for me with sleep, like if I have a bad night of sleep, I'm usually generally fine that next day. It's the day after that where I kind of get hit with it. So hmm. like, yeah, I would imagine like, you know, seeing that a little bit more upfront and being able to closely more associate the bad sleep pattern with other negative outcomes would be a, a habit changing incentive that you would normally not have. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, it's still early, but one of the the early trends we're seeing in the data is that <clears throat> people who um, just put on a glucose monitor improve their average time and range. So it's it, and it's by like ten percent or something like that. So you you know just by the act of starting to monitor it, most people will improve it because they're they're seeing it. So they're oh let's let's try to get this more in range. Let's try to improve this. Let's try to make it better. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's that's very much true. Um, it's it can be a little bit hard over time to figure out what's causing some of these spikes. And I think that's where Levels is really trying to help by providing the context and the, there's a really, they do a really good job with um, blog posts and education. So the, the, uh, I think the site, the, the you know, levelshealth.com slash blog does a really great job of talking about the context for metabolic health and how your, your different health behaviors can impact your health. Cause that you, you really need that information in order to then make those changes. Um, it's hard to know, you, you might get a couple of spikes and you're like, well, what, what did I do? Right. Was it, was it because I didn't get enough sleep or was it because I was stressed yesterday or was it because I didn't work out today or, you know, so, you know, un, untangling the, the, the mix of things and, and making the right changes um, can take a little bit of work, but um, we do see that, you know, pretty much in general, when people put these on um, they do improve their glucose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it makes sense. Uh, the habit forming, I think is probably, a good a good step in the right direction and then if you do it just you know for two weeks four weeks however long you start to kind of understand like your own routine a little bit better and then can make those choices a little more intuitively over time which i think is what usually cements that habit to a larger degree or at least makes it a little more consistent which is nice um one thing i wanted to talk about too is i mean kind of touched on this a little bit but just the relative advancement of glucose monitoring relative to some of these other like traditional blood panel metrics, like the one that comes to mind most specifically would be like a lipid panel yeah. where I could see, like, I'm trying to, I was trying to look at like, well, what are some of the negatives here? What are some things that we're going to have to kind of like work on avoiding so that, you know, it's a tool, right. And a tool can get misused just as it can get, can get misused if it's not being used in the right way. So like, the first, the first like suggestion to me was like, well, let's say you have someone who's having these like glucose excursions and they recognize what would otherwise be considered healthy food choice for them isn't necessarily working for one way or the other. So like the first thought is, well, I need to remove that food and replace it with something else. But what mm -hmm. if they replace it with something that is going to negatively impact, say their lipid panel but uh, they're not seeing that because they're they're right. blinded to that impact, but they are improving the other one. So they're sort of trading off one problem for another problem. 
is there uh have you seen anything like that with what you guys are looking at and then i guess the follow-up question to that is do we have any sort of like indication that we would have like a more holistic monitor at some point where we're seeing like more more of the details within like a typical blood panel outside of just glucose yeah yeah um so on the first side, the, the most obvious example there is alcohol. Um, drinking alcohol when you eat actually tends to reduce your blood glucose, mm. but we have some pretty good data that it increases the amount of fat that's then dumped into the uh, into the bloodstream. So you're you're sort of trading out glucose for fat production. Um, a little bit of that actually seems to be pretty good. So there um, there are a couple of studies showing that you know, not surprisingly, a drink of wine with dinner. Uh, particularly if it's a pasta dinner or something that has a lot of carbs in it is actually pretty healthy for you. Um, but three drinks, four drinks, probably not so much. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you don't see that on the glucose monitor. What all you see on the glucose monitor is, Oh, my glucose is going down. Great. Things, things look good. So yeah, I think that's a classic example of where we don't quite, uh, you know, we didn't, we don't have the full picture yet with just glucose monitoring. Um, glucose, monitoring technology has gone a lot faster than some of these other things, uh, fueled mostly by, I think, the rise in type 2 diabetes and the importance of having this available uh, as a treatment option for folks. Now what we're seeing is that the importance of that is being generalized to the population at large because we it's, it's actually great to start monitoring this way before you have diabetes. Um, now, and I think the next thing you're, we're starting to see folks develop ketone monitors and lactate and some of the other metabolic markers. Um, and that will expand too. I mean, it's interesting to think about cortisol for stress and sleep or oxytocin for that feeling of community and things like that, like, which is also important for health over time. So there's, there are a bunch of things that will come out, I think in the next few years, but glucose has, I think been driven because of the, uh, disease consequences of diabetes. And um, there was oh, there was one more thing I wanted to say. Um, the uh, what was you had one more question in there that I didn't answer yet. Uh, I think it was like the the two part question was essentially: Are we potentially doing some harm with trying to correct one problem and creating another one? Yeah. Um, and then the follow up was: Where are we in terms of having like a monitor that would more holistically? Be, like gauge like your blood panel in general versus just one one component yeah. to it. Well so the way we're approaching it, we actually have a metabolic panel that you can you can order as a levels member as well that includes the fat metabolism side of things. And that actually is really helpful because even though we can't monitor it on a day-to-day -day basis, if you look at it every couple of months, and this is what I do anyway, um, I'm getting I can get a sense for you know, are my lipids going more out of whack, right? Mm. Is is my optimization of glucose actually changing my lipid metabolism? So I think, you know, the way it will start is people are going to do regular monitoring. And, you know, if you look at the sort of more, uh, the whether you call them the worried well or the folks that are like tracking performance and health, they'll do anywhere between a three and a six month panel, um, blood panel, just to track how their general you know, A1C, lipids, maybe vitamin D, stuff like that is going. And um, and so we introduced a metabolic health panel about six months ago, and uh, we're offering that as part of the Levels membership. Um, where where I think uh, that can be, well, and, and I think even within 
uh, lipid metabolism, we're learning more. Like um, there's a bunch of recent work on ApoB and you probably are also heard about LP little a, but I think ApoB is actually pretty rapidly going to replace LDL cholesterol mm -hmm. uh, because it's a better marker of risk of cardiovascular disease. So I think making sure to add ApoB is an important thing there. And then I think the way this is going to go is we'll start with glucose monitoring and we can already do heart rate and temperature, right? Whether you do an R ring or a whoop or whatever, those three we can do together right now. And then I think, you know, additional stuff will just be measured more and more rapidly. We'll start with these three or six month sort of snapshots, and then we'll, we'll, you know, improve that over time and do it more and more frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is kind of surprising to me that like the employer, like if you do one of the employer, like blood panel tests to like, you know, check one of the boxes on your, uh, your wellness program or whatever it happens to be, or you're just going in to get your annual checkup or whatever it is. They don't typically put ApoB on that lipid panel unless you upgrade or ask for it to be added. So the average person I would imagine is probably not aware that that is something that they should suggest or request, but I wonder how long it'll be before that just becomes standard where now we're, it's just included with the general blood panel or I'm sorry, general lipid panel. Yeah. The, um, there are some recommendations that just came out in the last like six or 12 months. Um, well not so the, I think actually ApoB has worked its way into the general, um, you know, cardiovascular society recommendations within the mm -hmm. past couple of years. So that's already been there, but now you're seeing people advocate for it more and more as either a replacement for, or an adjunct to, uh, cholesterol, um, just the, the regular, you know, fractionated cholesterol panel. So I think that's only going to continue in the future. The, the evidence is pretty clear that, uh, ApoB is associated with cardiovascular risk, whereas LDL is only more loosely associated with it. Um, and that's why, I mean, and levels advisors have talked a lot about this. Um, and you know, there's a lot written on the blog about it, but, um, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more ApoB. And um, and the, the interesting thing is uh, you can actually regulate your lipids over uh, a couple of weeks um, pretty, pretty significantly as well. So in the same way that you can change your glucose and your A1C, uh, you can change your lipids over time. There was a, um, a guy I worked with a long time ago at the Cleveland Clinic who um, developed this diet really for uh, post-cardiac patients, um, post, um, uh, folks that had had a, a, a heart attack. And, uh, he was able to drop LDL from, you know, the two hundreds into the seventies or eighties pretty quickly. Now the diet that he was recommending was pretty draconian. It was like, you know, remove all fats <laughs> from your diet, which we don't do. Uh, and particularly if you're, you know, an advocate of low refined carbohydrates, you need to get your source from somewhere, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, removing omega-6, uh, fatty acids from your, from your diet that can really push your, your LDL pretty quickly. Um, so I think there's, you know, there, there, there are, while we develop these continuous monitoring technologies, there are strategies that you can use to regularly check in on different things, um, and, you know, to improve them over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I think like the other, the other thing I wanted to kind of circle back on before we get too far away from it was just like the habit forming side of things, because I find that one of the biggest issues a lot of times with people is, you know, in your youth, 
you can sort of just like abuse things to a degree in a lot of cases, especially if you're active and yeah. you start forming these habits around food that in the immediate and even semi long term aren't looking to be counterproductive. But at a certain point, you know, kids become adults and adults' lifestyles oftentimes change drastically because they're not in like a school setting anymore and they don't have mm -hmm. like, you know, groups of peers that are just spontaneously playing pickup sports and things like that, or you're doing anything active for that matter. And you have this situation where their poor eating habits were getting masked by their, their relatively active lifestyle or the fact that they were young and growing still uh, versus, you know, not growing and sitting in a desk or an office for the majority of the day and that sort of thing. And then they've, but they've got so ingrained in these habits uh, that were put in place because they were blinded to the ill effects of it. Uh, and maybe they were even like on the track to becoming diabetic or pre-diabetic and didn't know it yet. So like, is, is there any sort of like indication that like getting younger people more aware of what kind of potential damages they're doing through their nutrition in the midst of an otherwise healthy lifestyle so that they know at an early age that they should be forming good habits so that when they become adults and are potentially less physically active, they, uh, you know, they have like a better habit in place to maybe accommodate that new lifestyle versus their previous one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the earlier you address some of this, um, the better off you're going to be right. Cause, um, high sugars, just as an example, high sugars in the body over a period of time can really damage your tissues, right? The ultimate is then development of diabetes because you know you you essentially inactivate your nerves but sugar can attach to pretty much anything in the body um and you know has a lot of has impact across a broad range of things including development of a lot of inflammation and so this is where i think you know providing that education is so critical and i think you know our chief medical officer dr casey means does a really great job with sort of overall education around metabolic health and how to address it, because it's not clear to people how the food that we're eating uh, is really damaging us. Like it's not, you know, this the the metabolic health crisis has been out there for a long time, and it's because it's you know because most of the food that we eat is not great for you. People aren't aware of it. They they can't imagine that it, it's so easy to you know get into poor health from you know the things that you find in, in the grocery store or in the corner market or things like that and that's where i think you know casey um dr rob lustig do a really great job of presenting what the issues are and how you can think about improving them um, and she'll talk everything she'll talk about everything from reducing refined carbohydrates to um micronutrients you know addressing micronutrients obesogens um there's, you know, there, there are a range of things that I think young people need to be aware of so that they can develop healthier habits in the future. And unfortunately, you know, it's not, these are not things that we spend a lot of time on in medical school. Um, they're not a lot of, they're, they're things that have been sort of on the sidelines uh, for, for healthcare in general. And so I think it's really important that we're trying to bring that back into the spotlight and, um, you know, shine a light on it for folks. And, um, development of those uh, educational materials over time will be really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I also want to circle back to one other thing that we were talking about a little bit and get an idea of what you're seeing. Cause I, I some of the stuff like I think about, and I'm like, I wonder if I'm imagining a scenario that just like rarely ever happens or so it's not really something that needs to be addressed, but 
in on paper, it could technically be the case, which is you have these situations where someone has a very good uh, glucose average. But when you dig into the the more details, you notice it's an average from like a high spike followed by a really low dip is uh, I guess there's some, maybe two questions here. Like when we see these really high spikes that come down at a fairly quick rate, like within that first, like 30 to 60 minutes, do they typically also, are they balanced out and met by a really deep dip in a lot of those cases? And if that is the case, are these people, do they kind of correlate or trend to be the type of people who have that kind of roller coaster ride of a, like an experience to the day where they feel like they're like super energetic and then like, super low energy and then kind of back and forth throughout the course of the day? Yeah. I, I don't know that we have enough data to really know yet. I mean, we're, we're still at the beginning of really measuring these things in the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there, it is common to have a rise and then a dip that that's actually a good, typically what happens is with, with food consumption, your uh, pancreas spits out a bunch of insulin into the bloodstream. And that's what causes the initial drop back down. And then there's a, um, a secondary process where it's sort of tuning the insulin level to the glucose level. And that's, that's why you see biphasic uh, 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 spikes in a lot of folks who are healthy. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know that we know yet um, what determines like how low that goes or how healthy that is. We're, we're still trying to figure those types of things out. Um, but, but there certainly is potentially some, some really interesting information there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just seems like it's something that could eventually be a question that gets answered with a continuous glucose monitor that likely wouldn't be answered with just like the A1C score and things like that, where you don't necessarily get that that day-to-day look at things or even hour-to-hour look, which you're going to get with that sort of content and or that sort of uh, information that um, eventually compiles to a point where you can maybe see some averages. It was, you know, it was interesting because I was listening to a podcast with with Dominic Diagostino and he was kind of talking a little bit about that. He's just like, like, I think we, we, we sort of assume that we know like what a healthy glucose response is in general, but really there's, we know what we know. So like, right. Like, we take what we know and try to do the best we can with it. But like, what are the, like, there, there's a lot of things we probably don't know that we're going to learn with a ton of data from having healthy people or presumably healthy people wearing these things over time to get a better grasp of like what an actual healthy, like glucose response profile would look like. Uh, is that something that's kind of like primary on the list of like, things that that you, that, every, that folks at levels are looking at at trying to find out or exploring over the years. Yeah, I mean I think there yeah, there there's so many things to look into around that um that it it'll be impossible for us to do all of it. But mm-hmm. um we're definitely interested in identifying the trends that can correlate with better health habits. And I think, you know, just to to circle back to what you said at the beginning, it's really hard to figure out how to modify what you're doing unless you're getting continuous feedback. So that continuous feedback is really kind of critical for you to be able to make appropriate changes and to to get that level of what we call interoception, right? That you you already have a sense for how well you're doing. And I think, you know, if you've ever been an athlete or then you ha- you you spend a lot of time thinking about how you feel, right? But um and this is where glucose can really help provide that mirror. And as we get more and more analytes, more and more molecules that we're able to measure, 
um, we'll be able to give people more information about it over time. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's going to be cool to see where this all goes and then ultimately also see like what different populations kind of respond to it and, and what kind of data we collect over it. But, um, you know, that's it's been been great to chat with you. Dr. Sittler and get like a, a little bit more of a handle on kind of where everything is heading with this and looking at some of the, the, the different scenarios with it. But if there's any other things you want to touch on, we certainly can, but otherwise I want to be mindful of your time and thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Zach. This was fun. Awesome. And, to doing it again. Yeah. And, and is there any place that folks and the listeners can go find you if you, uh, if they want to see what you're up to or any websites or social media accounts, anything like that? Um, so I'm, I, I don't have a really high profile on social media. I would go to, you know, levelshealth.com, um, check out Levels Instagram. Um, my, my email, in case anybody wants it, is taylor at levelshealth.com. Awesome. I'll put the links to the website and uh, social stuff in the show notes, folks. So if you want to uh, check that out and see where, where things are heading with that, then you can, you can do that. But thanks a bunch again for taking some time and uh, filling us in on all things CGM. Yeah. Great talking with you, Zach. Awesome. Take care. Hey folks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 